chief diversity officers, honestly, sometimes they become the chief HR officer or they can go into operations because their job is to really partner with the business very closely to have an eye on inclusion, but also to align business strategy with inclusive practices. I'm Adam Connors from NetworkWise and your host of Who's Who in HR. Ask any successful CEO about the most important aspect of their company and they'll inevitably answer their people. And who is it that's responsible for their people? It's human resources. In fact, HR is the backbone of any elite organization. They attract, develop, and engage top talent, progress culture, secure and manage important benefit programs, make sure you're appropriately paid, protect the best interest of each employee and the company, and so much more that quite frankly often gets taken for granted. On Who's Who in HR, I'll have in-depth discussions with well-known human resource leaders who offer insights into who they are, how they got there, and the areas they support. During our conversation, these leaders will reveal beneficial industry advice and innovative trends in the HR space that's contributing to keeping the world's most successful companies at the top of their game. My guest on this episode is Dr. Crystal Morris. She has years of experience in human resources, and when it comes to talent recruitment and management, she knows all the ins and outs. Whether it's implementing new programs, understanding how applicant tracking systems work, or knowing the important and intricate details of what a chief diversity officer does, Crystal has done it all. So if you want to hear from a true talent management professional, you've come to the right place. Let's dive right in. Dr. Crystal Morris, how are you? Hi, Adam. I'm great. Thank you. <laughs> you sound great. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, where do we find you today? I am in my home in Chicago, Illinois today. All right. Good stuff. I'm uh, sitting here in Hoboken. Uh, not much has changed in the past couple months. Um, <laughs> so I, I, yeah. really, <laughs> I appreciate you coming on today and carving out some time to share your story, your expertise, and to kind of pass on some of the wisdom that you've accrued through the years. You ready to get started? Absolutely. Awesome. So what I'd love to do, I want the audience to get a better feel for who you are, um, not just from you know what you've done, but more of as a, as a person. I want them to be able to kind of relate to you. And uh, from there, we're going to get into the meat and potatoes of our conversation in terms of some of your area of expertise and then we'll wrap up. How's that sound? That sounds great. Okay. So tell me when the last thing that made you laugh, what was it? <laughs> I laughed uh, this morning at a really silly meme that I read on Facebook last night. <laughs> I don't know if everyone will, will get it, but it was about a woman who was asked if any churches in her neighborhood have been open during the pandemic. And her response was, I don't know, I eat Popeyes. So you'd have to understand the war between church's chicken and Popeyes chicken <laughs> to find it funny. But once I got it, it was hilarious. I, I, I've got to tell you, this pandemic, one of the best things to... to <laughs> one of the best things to come out of this pandemic has been the rapid amount of memes 
that have been yes. floating around. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, that's great. I, um, and I am familiar with that. So I, I think that's uh, extremely, <laughs> I think that's fantastic. As a matter of fact, um, I still haven't had that sandwich that people talk about. I have not either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So what do you do to stay uh, sharp, not just uh, physically, but also mentally? I read a lot, whether it's the Wall Street Journal or Huffington Post or just grab one of the many, many books off my bookshelf that I have yet to read. I also attend conferences. Uh, these days, it's virtual. Um, mm. I'm actually attending a full day virtual conference tomorrow. And then on Friday and Saturday, a full two-day writer's workshop. I like to participate in webinars. To keep the brain sharp, I do brain games on my iPad. I enjoy word games and puzzles on my phone as well. So a lot of little things to just try to make sure that I'm staying mentally sharp. When things are as they were before the pandemic, I would make sure that I kind of got massages to relax those muscles every now and then and some stretching to, to kind of stay physically fit. But I think keeping the brain sharp is pretty important too, particularly in, in today's times. So, Oh, yeah. Now, have you always been naturally curious? Like, like what, what prompted you to pursue all of the degrees that you have? I've always been curious. It's interesting that you asked that. My mother told me that I was very curious, um, inquisitive as a child. I come from a mother who was a teacher. She ended up becoming my sixth grade vice principal and then on to work as the right hand of kind of the superintendent of school. So she was kind of my favorite role model. And I feel like I kind of emulate her intelligence and wisdom. And so my pursuit of higher education is not only because I felt like I, lead, I needed to work towards my full potential, but also just to satisfy that desire for lifelong learning. I think the beautiful thing about learning is that no one can ever take it away from you. And so getting to develop my leadership skills and having pursued my doctorate in organizational leadership was something that I wanted to do to also enhance and build my credibility. I think later in life, I hope to become a tenured professor at a university level. And so I definitely felt like kind of climbing that educational ladder would be just as important as climbing the corporate ladder. So did you have, you know, in all of your tenure of education, was there ever a class or a course that you took that you felt best, either was just your favorite class or just that really kind of primed you for success in one area or another? I can go back to my undergraduate days at UC Santa Barbara, where I studied sociology. And there was a course on kind of an anthropology type of course, which was more about study of societies and how people work and really even understanding Navajo Indians and the hunters and gatherers and how you build community. I remember talking about that class with my mother, who was an anthropology major, and talking about community and how important that is and how people build community and why different cultures build community in different ways. And I think that's what probably sparked my curiosity about people and how people work and how people need each other and work together and come together for a common purpose. And so it doesn't surprise me that I fell into human resources really based on my curiosity of, of just the inner workings of people and societies and cultures and really wanting to understand how kind of people come together for the common good. That's really interesting. Did you know 
back then? That was human resources on your radar? No, I had never heard of human resources in college. It was my junior year in college that I did an internship at Santa Barbara Cottage Hospital in human resources that I first got introduced. But before that, I didn't know what it was. So I had no idea even after college because I thought I wanted to be a marriage and family therapist coming right out of uh, school with my sociology degree. And then I wanted to go into healthcare. And neither one really worked out for me. I just decided to just work. And so I ended up working in San Diego and found a role in human resources and loved it and then just built my career from there. I mean, and that was in the mid-90s. So I've been in human resources for 24 years, but it definitely wasn't the path I charted for myself. My mom wanted me to be a teacher and follow her educational path or her um, professional path, but I decided that I wanted to just explore on my own to see what I would fall in love with. And, and human resources is what it was. And it doesn't surprise me because of my natural curiosity, again, about people and cultures. It doesn't surprise me. I've often wondered why I've stayed in human resources mm-hmm. as long as I have, because it has its challenges. But I think there's so many rewarding parts of it that it certainly outweighs um, the challenges. So let me ask you this. Nowadays, there are, there are a bunch of these human resource programs that are out there and some really established or becoming very established programs. If you could do it again, would you go a more liberal arts, similar to like what you, the path that you took? Or knowing what you know now, would it have served you better to have really focused on HR and gone into one of these programs? That's interesting. My master's is in organizational management. It touched a lot on leadership but it did not necessarily touch on human resources as a function or as a practice. And so if I had the option to do it all over again and wanted the same kind of career path, I probably would have focused a little bit more on a master's degree that did have a specialization in human resources. I actually don't have any formal education in human resources, yet I've been doing it for 24 years. So most certainly if I could go back I would probably have a specialization um, in human resources with my master's degree. Well, what do you think it would have done for you? I mean, you've been wildly successful without it. Maybe just some grounding, just some foundational work to have common core knowledge and understand all of the different functionalities so that I wasn't finding them by happenstance. I mean, I fell in love with talent management and recruitment, but that was more by happenstance versus really understanding all of the different functions in HR and then selecting one. Mm. So had I had that kind of um, basis of HR and all the different functions, I might have been more intentional about choosing a path than allowing a path or a function to choose me. Because in many (laughs) cases with my employers, it's okay, we brought you in to be a director of human resources, but then within a few months, hey, can you take recruiting too? Sure. Hey, can you take talent management six months later? Yeah. Hey, we want you to start the first diversity committee. Okay. <laughs> so it was all kind of just Crystal can do a lot. She can take on a lot. So let's give her all these different things versus me saying, hey, I'm really passionate or I want to learn more about XYZ. Can I do that? So so the masters may have, have given me a little bit more of a foundational knowledge, but I, I, I don't know that the path would have changed much. It may have provided a slightly bit more of credibility, but I, I've done, you're right, like you said, I've done well for the <laughs> fact that I haven't had any formalized uh, HR education. 
Yeah, I don't think anyone's going to knock your credibility. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. So before digging into more on the professional side, two more quick questions for you. Tell me about a habit you have, good or bad. Uh, I love watching Jeopardy. That's a habit I've been watching since I was 16. I actually tried out when I was 16. I didn't make it to the final round, but it's something my father and I used to do together. Every day we'd gather around the TV and, and watch Jeopardy and we'd, we'd have our sheets of paper out and who gets it first and we'd tally it up and you know pick a winner and I'd get upset when he'd win. But yeah, Jeopardy is, was a habit. Now I have a little bit more of a habit of reality TV, and I'm not afraid to admit that. I find now that I can talk to my coworkers. Did you watch The Bachelor? Can you believe he picked, you know, such and such? And a lot of people now watch a little bit more of reality TV because it's it doesn't require you to think a lot. It's entertaining and um Sometimes the next day you go to work and you can talk about it with your colleagues. So it's kind of fun. Well, I have to admit that I've, I've succumbed to reality TV show. I'm, I'm addicted <laughs> to this. Uh, it's called Naked and Afraid. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's just uh, my wife keeps threatening to sign me up for it. <laughs> That's uh, funny. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm like, these guys don't have it bad. They're not quarantined with food and TV and access to everything else. But no, I'm just being sarcastic. <laughs> So one more thing before we roll into the professional side, get, get, tell me something fun about you. Give me a fun fact. Oh boy. Um, well, a lot of people don't know that I love roller coasters. I'm a thrill seeker. So I will get on a plane with the sole purpose of getting on a roller coaster. One day last year, I flew to Virginia. I went to Bush Gardens, rode roller coasters for six hours, and then headed right back to the airport. And so I'm a thrill seeker. I love to jet ski and bungee jump and zip line and just anything with speed is my thing. So um, I'm quite a bit of a thrill seeker. Oh, I like that. Have you done the race car driving yet? Not more than the bumper cars. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you might want to put in your list. It's uh, in Arizona. I think it's called like the Bob Bondaroo. I think that's what it's called out in Arizona where you can race. That's where a lot of famous race car drivers, they go to race and to try this out. I think they're sponsored by Corvette. It's a lot of fun. Mm, yeah. So, sounds great. Okay. You you like that West Coast. So when you're out there. Yeah. I used to live list. in Arizona at one uh, time. <laughs> uh, there you go. Uh, but then again, you might just go there for a day. <laughs> so so, <laughs> so <right>. who knows? <laughs> um, all right. So if you could talk to us, give us a, a quick overview of your background. Obviously, we talked about some of your education, but if you'd uh, be kind enough to edify us on uh, what is your experience? What is it that you've done and that you bring to the table? And then I'm going to try to dig into that a little bit. Okay. Yeah. There's a few areas. I would bucket into all into human capital. I've done everything from talent management, so how you acquire, engage, develop talent, to ensuring the culture is welcoming and inclusive. So that's where diversity and inclusion falls in. That's where I have a, a good bulk of experience to building leadership capability. So I've worked quite a bit on leadership development. And then, of course, we've talked about my academic expertise, but I, I do want to just highlight that my dissertation was on work and family integration. So one of the things I've brought into a few different workplaces is understanding how to build workspaces that kind of aid in all generations and other dimensions of diversity, being able to do their best work, to operationalizing work-life policies, to helping women kind of acclimate back into the workplace once they've come back from maternity leave, 
to helping organizations think through paternity leave policies, so helping fathers take advantage of baby bonding. But that work-life integration, people used to call it work-life balance. I'm personally one that believes there is no balance. There's not a perfect 50-50. But just that integration, and and people are dealing with this heavily now, right? You got schools are closed. You got kids at home. You might have two parents working full-time, and you're trying to figure out homeschooling. So how do you develop those boundaries and say, okay, we're going to stop work now and we're going to start working with the kids now or now it's time to fix dinner or all the different things that happen in the home. So one of the things that as I think about repurposing my purpose and my vision and the things that I'm um, where I'm able to add value, one of the things that I want to bring into a workplace is my expertise in helping organizations build successful work-life programs. What's the biggest challenge that they face typically when rolling these kinds of programs out? Okay, whether or not everyone's ready for that, right? Because in an old school style leadership, so think Theory X, it's being seen, right? It's all about you're not working unless I see you. Mm. So in the days of work-life integration and being more flexible, it's about the work that's being done whenever it gets done and wherever it gets done versus it's only getting done if I see you in your office or if I see you at your cubicle or if I see you in in the meeting with me. So I would say some of the challenges are not every leader is ready to manage remotely or virtually and not every leader believes that work gets done when people aren't visible. I think that's proven to be untrue and there are many research studies that indicate people are even more productive but you have a lot of different workplaces and then everyone's job can't be done from home. If you're in a manufacturing environment and you're putting a product together, you need the entire assembly line, right? So only certain types of jobs can even be done at home. So then the other challenge becomes, how are you being fair and equitable for those that can be working at home? And then what do you offer to those that can't work from home, but maybe still want to feel some flexibility? Is it Mm. different shifts? Is it job shadowing or, I'm sorry, sharing, job sharing? Is it sharing a job um, then maybe reducing hours or working part-time? Or how do you make sure that everyone feels like they get to benefit from flexible working? So if, if we rewind a little bit, the, the job sharing is something that I find pretty interesting. And I'm very curious. So they do that in some parts of Europe. I was um, just going to say that it's not done a lot in the United States, but it's done in Europe very, very well. Oh, that was going to be my question. If you knew of how successful it was and if so, what made it successful? And the reason I ask is prior to this whole COVID issue, the concern was robotics and AI taking over a lot of jobs. So a lot of the politics were, or the politicians were saying, all right, what are we going to do? Because there's going to be a massive amount of jobs that are going to get eliminated. And they were talking about potentially rolling out what some of these countries in Europe are doing in terms of job sharing as like a way to kind of keep people mentally engaged, make them feel like they have a purpose and also to be able to put cash in their pocket. So I'd be curious to get your perspective on on just job sharing in general and you know how, i have how, heard yeah yeah i'm sorry what i what i've heard um that makes it successful is some of the annual leave policies and so for example a maternity leave can be anywhere from nine to 12 months so while that person is off 
and there's someone else that's only working part-time, they may say, okay, let's get two part-time people to fill that full-time role while they're covering a maternity leave. And perhaps when that person comes back from maternity leave, they only want to work part-time. So now there's an opportunity to bring that person back and then have someone else work the rest of the shift, if you will. So job sharing has become so prominent in Europe because of their very robust maternity leave policies. Mm. Also because there's just a lot of part-time workers for whatever reason. So if you have a full-time role, then you have an opportunity to give two part-time people the ability to share that role. So they have, you know, really interesting policies that I think allow for it. And then they have leaders that are well-versed and prepared to manage through part-time working and or job sharing, whereas that's just not it's not used as frequently and prominently in the United States. And I don't think it's something we couldn't rally around here. I just think when we develop job descriptions, we're typically developing a job description for a full-time employee. And I don't know that we think enough about can this job, number one, can the job be done in 80% time or 75% time? Number two, can the job be done remotely? So what we're starting to see a lot more are job descriptions that say this job can be done remotely. And I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of that given the current economic times. Yeah. So you said something that I think that made me think of something else. You talked about job descriptions and having mm-hmm. been in this whole talent space for so long, I'd love to get your opinion on job descriptions, how important they are from everything from even just recruiting, recruiting the right talent to laying out what the responsibilities are going to be. And I guess just the whole way of going about a job description. Job descriptions are important to help an employee or a candidate, potential candidate, who's kind of just perusing online and looking for a role. They're important to help that person decide if they meet at least the basic minimum qualifications and if they'd be interested. I don't know that a job description will ever have the full breadth of all the capabilities and outcomes and responsibilities that any one role has, right? Because you end up taking on a role and that role may change 10 times over the course of a few years that you may occupy that role. I think what's most important are the minimum basic qualifications, whether that be technical knowledge or educational experience. And then core capabilities. This person needs to be able to think strategically through how to put together a project plan. But to list every single thing, because what happens is I've responded to a job and then took the job and there were things in that job description I was never asked to do and they were the things I was most excited about, right? So if you fill a job with a bunch of stuff that you think you want the person to do, or maybe it's what the last person did, but perhaps you've modified your structures internally. And so the per- you get the person excited about all the stuff you've filled the job description with. You've developed an expectation that you're going to contract with this individual on these things that they've been asked to do. It's, it, it creates an expectation. So I actually feel like we should put less in job descriptions and talk through here are the some of the things that you might be asked to do, but you might also be asked to do ABC. And then of course, there's always the, and other duties as assigned, right? We could never describe to you all the things that we might 
look for you to do. And you may come in with some really cool experience where you may be able to add value in different ways that we haven't thought about. So I think, I think in this case, less is more. And I'll probably have a lot of legal people say, oh, no, that might not be the right thing to do. But in this case, I kind of think less is more. I think you provide an outline and you provide the technical capabilities, the competencies, how many years of experience, the educational experience is needed, but don't fill it up line by line with you're going to meet with the board of directors every quarter. Okay, so then you've created an expectation. Like that's one of the things that made me apply, right? And then you get inside and realize, oh, yeah, no, we've decided to go a different direction with that. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah so we've seen that. That's my long winded answer to that question. <laughs> Do you see it being, you know, because if you open it up, then the funnel gets really big at the top. How do you potentially vet people? Because nowadays with technology, I mean, a friend of mine is a recruiter and she was telling me that, you know, she posts a job on LinkedIn and, you know, she can receive over 500 submissions. Oh, yeah. The, oh, you know. there's 500 to 800 people applying for many jobs. And I think looking at a resume, job titles, I'm hearing a lot of people talk about of course, the keyword searches, if the job description is filled with a few competencies, keywords, educational experiences, that needs to match. I think either through artificial intelligence or sometimes the human eye is actually still looking at resumes, which I still yeah. appreciate. But looking at types of companies, types of industries, because you know what your hiring manager is looking for. But I do think people are screened out fairly quickly from some of these applicant tracking systems that they've been programmed to look for very specific. I know it used to be called Boolean language. I don't know what it's called anymore, but they've been, they've been, they've been programmed to look for things that are so specific that some people probably get screened out that are very capable, particularly your non-traditional hires like a veteran, like a person with disabilities and or someone that has all the skills of an experience, but perhaps they've done it in a different industry. That can be kind of dangerous from a perspective of ruling people out that are very capable, but may not have the traditional experience that you're looking for or traditional background that you're looking for. So let's talk about that. How do you get those diversity candidates in the door? Diversity meaning comes in all different shapes and sizes. Like you said, it could be veterans. It could be someone who is black, Hispanic, Latino, whatever, Latina, I should say, whatever... (laughs) classification they fall under that maybe again on paper they're not looking right but you and I both know that they're solid for this how do they stand out what can you put in place yeah there's so many different sourcing strategies that I think recruiters should tap into there are academic organizations there's professional organizations there's probably a professional type of organization for most dimensions of diversity you can think of so I've come from professional services and accounting firms. I'm very familiar with the National Association of Black Accountants. There's the Latino MBAs, Nishimba, the National Mm -hmm. Society of Hispanic MBAs. There's Ascend, which is for Asian Americans in business. There's International Association of Black Actuaries, who I used to be on their board. So it's, there's so many different types of organizations to tap into there's a Society of Women Engineers, SWE, SWE. There's, and some of these are on campuses. So whether or not you're tapping into collegiate talent coming out of school or you're tapping into professional talent, there's tons of STEM organizations. There's a National Society of Black Engineers. Of, and I'm, you know, I'm Black, so I know a lot of those organizations because I've supported them, been on their <laughs> yeah. boards, or I've spoken at, spoken at their conferences. But 
there is an organization for almost every type of dimension. There's a National Organization on Disability, NOD. There are veteran organizations. So there's organizations that support people with autism. And if you need someone, I've started an autism program before at one of my former employers where we hired autistic professionals to do repeatable technical skills. They could do it better than anyone that I've ever mm-hmm. seen. And we were able to tap into a different type of professional that had a, a certain special set of skills and then created a program around that to help their leaders understand their capabilities, um, where maybe they had some deficiencies, and then how to lead them appropriately so that they could have a solid employee experience at work. And so there's just so many programs to tap into when you're trying to find an underutilized population. So is that just an education that the recruiter who's, or whoever it is that's doing the hiring should be familiar with? That is an opportunity for the recruiting team to partner with a diversity professional. Um, A lot of major corporations now have a diversity leader, a chief diversity officer, and that person is um, typically fairly knowledgeable about these types of organizations because it's part of their external partnership arm, if you will. And so to the extent that they can tap into those organizations and then broker relationships with their recruiting team and or facilitate a training partner. If a recruiter ever came to me and said, hey, my hiring manager really wants a diverse hire for this chief financial officer role, can you help me? I immediately would say, let's go to NABA, let's go to Ascend, let's go to these four organizations. And I have four LinkedIn groups for you to tap into and post the job there. And you're likely to drum up some diverse candidates. So it's a true partnership internally between both that recruiting team and the diversity team, if there is one. So when it comes to diversity, a chief diversity officer, What is, I guess, their primary role? Is it education? Is it to team up with recruiting? Is it striking partnerships, firm-wide partnerships, all the above? It's all the above. (laughs) (laughs) I've done everything you just named and plus some. It's working with the recruiting team to ensure that you're helping to uncover unconscious biases Mm. so that they're not ruling out a resume because perhaps they can't pronounce the name, right? Then it's making sure that the hiring manager understands the recruiting process and that they don't have biases. It's educational. So it's introducing people to data and studies around blind spots and bias and and introverts versus extroverts and different communication styles and just making sure that you're providing the most inclusive experience that you can for everyone. Then there's all the external partnerships. So it might be working with outside organizations to bring in talent, to source talent, to have people volunteer, to give forgiving from um, a philanthropic standpoint. Um, It's working with leaders on all the talent management processes. So you might be sitting around a table, calibrating on someone's performance and helping leaders think through how to make sure they're speaking appropriately about a woman who may have just returned from maternity leave. Perhaps they're discussing what kind of jobs or career trajectories she may have. And they're saying, well, you know, she may not be able to do that because she just had a child. So your role might be, well, why don't we allow them to make a decision, right? Why don't we present the opportunity to her because she may have a nanny. 
her husband may be stay at home. We can't make the decision for them, right, on whether or not they have the capacity. We know she has the capability. Let's let her decide on whether or not she has the capacity. So it's helping inform and shape decisions that sometimes people just don't think about. They're talking really quickly. They're making snap judgments, which we all do, but it's helping to shape and inform decisions in a way that give people the opportunity to build skill sets and capability and be more open-minded in their discussions about talent. So it's everything. If you're working for an organization that has a product, it could be multicultural marketing. It's how do we penetrate a larger market and make sure that we are tapping into the Latino market in Los Angeles for XYZ product? How can we use the employee resource group to help us think through a marketing strategy? So chief diversity officers, honestly, sometimes they become the chief HR officer or they can go into operations because their job is to really partner with the business very closely to have an eye on inclusion, but also to align business strategy with inclusive practices. So that's interesting. I I never thought of it that, you know, from the strategic business standpoint, and I'm going to assume most people aren't either. So I I really appreciate that perspective. What would you say has been the best skill set that you have acquired that has led to the success that you've experienced? Oh, by far, I would say resiliency. (laughs) It's not a technical skill set. It's a, it's more of a softer skill set. Well, can, but, can I interject um, for one second? I think the yes. soft skill. I think the soft skills are the hard skills. Those are, the, I, are, are, are I call them the, true. the durability skills. So I yep. am, and you know, no pun because you talked about resilience. But uh, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I just, oh, I don't like that term, soft skills. Okay, no, I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that so much. So the work in HR is not always challenging, but sometimes it's not too challenging. It can be done. But working with risk-averse people or people that aren't open-minded or leaders that can't imagine a work environment where people aren't in an office. (laughs) So the resiliency is having to manage and navigate politically charged waters sometimes or managing through change where I'm very comfortable, but I'm helping a lot of people get comfortable being uncomfortable. I would say those are more of the harder things. And so just being resilient through all of that. I think if I may speak freely about this, being a Black woman in spaces that aren't always diverse, sometimes being the only person in spaces that aren't always diverse has its own challenges in and of itself. And so just navigating through that can be challenging. And so resiliency has just been a part of who I am and the fiber of how I show up, I mean, for as long as I can remember. Wow. So if you had any advice from the future, if you could go back in time and give yourself some professional advice to prepare you for that resiliency, or maybe not even, maybe whatever the advice might be, might help you to avoid the resilience, what would it be? It actually is aligned with resiliency. It's being okay, being different, being okay with being different. So the advice would be, you don't always have to fit in. It's okay to show up in your own authenticity. It's okay to not force yourself to fit into spaces or cultures where it may not feel as natural. I've spent a big portion of my professional career trying to fit in with peers or 
wanting to be invited out to lunch or out to have drinks after work or fighting to have a seat at the table. And, you know, it becomes exhausting when you're trying, right? When you're constantly trying. So I kind of feel like that would be the advice that I would have given myself many, many years ago is that it's okay to be different. It's also okay to be the only one, right? It's okay to be the only one that looks like you, that speaks like you, that has the background and education that you do. And to try not to force yourself into conversations, force yourself at the table, interject yourself in ways that where others aren't comfortable with you, with what you have to offer, that it's just okay. And I think what's been interesting is that I have found many Black women with the same story that I have, actually. It's very gratifying to know that I'm not the only one that's had this, these experiences. However, sad to know that there are many people who have spent a lot of time trying to change or modify ourselves when others don't necessarily have to. So, yeah, my advice would be that it's okay to be different. Yeah. Follow your true north. Follow my true north. <laughs> We're running a little tight on time. I got uh, one more question for you. Okay. Actually, you know what? I'm gonna, I'll let you choose. I got two questions that I've got on the top of my head, and I'll let you choose which one you want to roll with. Okay. What's the best advice that someone ever gave you, or outside of your family, who's had the biggest impact in your career? I'll choose the second one because someone stood out as soon as you asked that question, and it was probably and it's early in my career, but as I reflect on the relationship that we built and the advice that I took, it's really had an impact. So my very first boss at Intel, or he may have been the second or third, I had 11 in four years. So one of my 11 <laughs> bosses at Intel. That's a whole other podcast, <laughs> by the way. You know? <laughs> um, one of my um, bosses at Intel, his name was Wallace Thompson. And um he believed in me and made it very clear. He was very intentional about the way that he developed me. He was very intentional about the access and exposure that he gave me. Mm. I still send him messages to this very day and say, I want you to know you're still my favorite boss. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's something he saw in me very early. He encouraged me to get my master's degree and then made sure that after I got it, I was promoted. I wasn't even expecting that, but he made sure he went and specifically talked to an HR person and said, she now has her master's degree. I feel like she meets the qualification for the next step in her role and she should be promoted. And he made that happen for me. And so it taught me that when you are intentional as a leader, when you're focused on development, it can really lead to not only loyalty, but also just a great employee experience, just um, attachment to the brand, to enhanced engagement. And so for the next three years, I was so loyal and so committed to doing, going above and beyond at my job because of what Wallace saw in me and how he developed me. And I still take that leadership lesson I learned from how he led best leader I've ever had. He was a former veteran. I believe he was in the army. But I take that leadership lesson and I've made sure that I mirror that same type of style. I am very much into developing my people and my team. I want to know where you want to go and how can I help you get there. And so um, he absolutely was someone that impacted my career. 
Wow, that is powerful, and what an endorsement. Wallace, nice work, my friend. <laughs> I can't <laughs> I, wait till this comes out so I can yeah. make sure that he hears it. <laughs> yeah, oh my God, that's gonna, you're going to give him an ear-to-ear smile. Um, well, all right, now, so. now you're going to have to, after hearing that, I'm going to ask one more question. Just Oh my goodness. It is a short and sweet. <laughs> um, what are your thoughts on the quote that people leave, they leave managers, not companies? I believe it. (laughs) (laughs) I've left a few. Yeah, yeah, I believe that. And that's because they're kind of the one person that can have a really nice, good or bad impact on your career trajectory. Either they're intentionally focused on you to develop you and grow your career, or they can stunt your growth Mm -hmm. and they're providing you feedback or they're not. They are providing you professional career development and exposure, or they are not. And therefore, they are one person. Now, you can have mentors and peers and other folks that are great and you have great relationships with, but if you don't really feel like you have that really connected relationship with the person you directly report to, it's hard to feel like you're having the best experience you can have. I've been in an experience where I've really valued the relationship with the person that I work directly for. And I've been in an experience where I feel like that person didn't get me and I didn't get them. And they were really two completely different experiences. One that I grew from and really appreciated and one that I just couldn't wait to get away from. (laughs) Yeah, it is so true. I'm a big believer in that quote as well. Dr. Crystal Morris, I want to thank you for uh, making today happen, you know, sharing some awesome nuggets of wisdom with us and just being on the show. Thank you so much for providing me with this opportunity to share my story. And I appreciate that you do this great work and that you um, allow others to share their story. So I can't wait to listen to this and to continue to support you in your endeavors. Oh, thank you so much and make it a great day. You too. Many thanks for listening to Who's Who in HR. If you're looking to connect with more top-level HR professionals, be sure to log on to NetworkWise.com to find out how you could be part of an HR mastermind group. Also, subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date on everything happening with NetworkWise. In the interim, make it a great day and remember to always NetworkWise.